Let me just say a few words uh, about what we're talking about. I assume that most of you chose to come here because of the subject, but uh, it, it's, it's about uh, women's religiosity historically in Jewish history, right? So uh, what do we know about the religiosity of women? We know every, everything seems to be written down by men, and the rabbinic uh, experience is told from the male rabbi point of view. Um, so the, the answer is we don't know very much about uh, the history of women's religious lives and spiritual lives. Um, and when we think about the most intensive form of spirituality in the Jewish world from an historical point of view. So we would say, oh, the greatest, most intensive forms of spirituality and piety are in Kabbalah. That's where you, so Kabbalists are the great mystics, the great spiritual giants of the Jewish people. And, um, and then you say, wow, so the greatest form of Jewish spirituality and the kind of thing a person would have to do if they were going to be a spiritual giant. That, that means you become a Kabbalist. You so read a lot of Kabbalistic books. If you're a great Kabbalist, you maybe write some Kabbalistic books. Um, and that makes you, right, basically a top, top dog in terms of the history of Jewish spirituality. Sadly, of course, women aren't part of that club because they didn't write any Kabbalistic books. So unfortunately, Kabbalah and Jewish spirituality in that intensive form is a men's club. There's no, there are no women in this, in this club. This is um, the first source on the sheet that I've uh, passed out but not yet received myself which would be really super. I would love to see it. I mean, I know these sources pretty well, but thanks. Even just a reminder of the order would be useful to me. At this point, I'm not getting any younger, so it's good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so this caught my attention, but it's a, it's a more complicated story uh, how I got into it if I don't manage to bring it out sufficiently in my remarks now. Uh, we, and you're curious, you can ask me later. But uh, the, the, the most famous scholar of Jewish mysticism of the 20th century, and one of the most famous scholars of the 20th century, uh, was Gershom Sholem. I don't know if that's a name that many of you are familiar with, but he's up there in that same club with with other people whom you may or may not have heard of, like Walter Benjamin and the Frankfurt School intellectuals, and people don't hesitate to come to speak about Kafka and Freud in the same breath. And uh, he was the authority for what was the history of Kabbalah until maybe the 80s when some people started saying, okay, maybe we can question a few of his conclusions. Um, but this is what he has to say at the beginning of his major survey of the history of Jewish mysticism called Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism. Still a great book and 
very worth reading. But it, has, it does have this rather annoying paragraph here that I've reproduced as Exhibit A, called on the absence of women in, on your source sheet. And this is how he wraps up his introduction. He's about to begin his historical survey of the different major trends in the history of Jewish mysticism when he says this, one final observation should be made on the general character of Kabbalism as distinct from other non-Jewish forms of mysticism. Both historically and metaphysically, it is a masculine doctrine made for men and by men. The long history of Jewish mysticism shows no trace of feminine influence. There have been no women Kabbalists. Rabia of early Islamic mysticism, Mechtild of Magdeburg, Juliana of Norwich, Teresa de Jesus, and the many other feminine representatives of Christian mysticism have no counterparts in the history of Kabbalism. The latter, therefore, lacks the element of feminine emotion which has played so, part, so large a part in the development of non-Jewish mysticism, but it also remained comparatively free from the dangers entailed by the tendency towards hysterical extravagance which followed in the wake of this influence. So that's just an amazing paragraph. I can't, thank you for allowing me to remeet it. Um, but <clears throat> uh, this was uh, basically a given when I went to school that the, this, there, there's nothing to say about women in the uh, context of Jewish mysticism. But when I was doing my dissertation research, um, I, I began noticing that in an, a lot of the literature I was working with, I was coming across primarily stories of uh, women who were described uh, along a spectrum, certainly, but basically as wise women or spiritual women. And I started noticing what seemed to me to be a kind of sisterhood among women who were given this kind of status or described in this way in the uh, sources that I was reading. And that's, uh, that uh, att attention to the women who were coming up in uh, the literature that I was exploring for other reasons, right? The, the research that I was doing at that time ended up going into the book about spirit possession that the Wall Street Journal liked very much. And so, and most people are surprised that there are, well, even five books on spirit possession, but actually there are many books on spirit possession, including many by anthropologists. So it's not a, not a small subject, but it is surprising to hear that the Wall Street Journal has a column on the five best books written on spirit possession. This is something that not everyone understands, but the Wall Street Journal has every week a column on the five best books in Subject X, and that column is written by whoever they find who's an expert in that little niche. Anyway, so uh, why did I go down that path? Oh, yes, because I was reading all this stuff about spirit possession, and a lot of women come up in those stories. Then I also noticed that next to those stories, there are stories about women who some of them were spirit-possessed, but possessed by spirits who were thought well of, you know, and who became uh, mediums or kind of uh, female prophets. 
in their communities. And I'm reading sources that are written by rabbis, including some of the most uh, prestigious, important rabbis in the most central Jewish communities of the, the early modern world. I'm talking about the 16th century, the 17th century. And because I'm interested in this period, I'm also looking at books on female mystics, especially among the Christians in the same period. And I noticed one thing <laughs> when I read that literature, and that was when they were looking to see who they were going to include in their study of mysticism, they had very different criteria than we did those of us who are interested in the history of Jewish mysticism. Somebody writes a book on Jewish mysticism, and they look at the history of Kabbalistic books and choose who gets in on the basis of who wrote a good Kabbalistic book. And that's the, that's the criterion. But when the Christians write the history of mysticism, they're putting people in because they were clairvoyants and prophets and they could bless and they had uh, all kinds of uh, somatic and embodied forms of spirituality like the stigmata, you know, that sometimes it's generally the Catholics, they get the wounds of the crucifixion all of a sudden appearing on their palms and their feet and so forth, um, or their... Uh, you know, uh, regarded as prophets, ignorant, illiterate people who all of a sudden are able to preach and quote uh, incredibly insightful uh, interpretations of canonical texts. Right? They're, this is what they're looking for. And as it, as it turns out, a lot of the people who fit these these kinds of descriptions are women. So the history of Christian mysticism is full of women who are illiterate, but uh, mostly illiterate, right? But, but venerated by sometimes very important clergymen who see in them uh, prophets who are able to have profound insight into canonical scripture who are able to actually teach them something because of their uh, you know, remarkable spiritual gifts. But n none of this has anything to do with whether they have any attainments as writers or consumers of a particular high-end uh, literature. So, um, and this is where it all comes together, basically. I, I, I realize that if you apply the same criteria and you look in what we have evidence for in historical Jewish records, it turns out there are some women that we can talk about. You can write a history of Jewish mysticism, and you can include women. And so I started writing about them, and uh, I even have, a, I have something I'm sort of proud of in a funny way. In the new edition of the Encyclopedia Judaica, uh, after, after my book came out and I profiled a number of these women, they said, we want an, an uh, entry in the new Encyclopedia Judaica on one of those women. So for the first time, right, it, there is such a thing as a Jewish women mystic.
uh, recognized by the Encyclopedia Judaica as, a, as an historical character uh, of, of importance. Um, okay, so, so Sholem was right that there are no female Kabbalists, but his mistake was to think that you can limit Jewish mysticism or Jewish piety or spirituality or whatever you want to call it, to think that you could limit that to almost like, you know, what degree does the person have? Did they write a book or they didn't write a book? If you think that Jewish spirituality begins and ends with whether you wrote a book, okay. So until relatively recently, you would not have a lot of women in that, you know, in that, um, in that group. But if you just use the same criteria that everybody else uses for thinking about the history of mysticism in their communities, or religious uh, communities, then, then it's an altogether different story. Okay, so basically with that uh, in mind, I have to share with you tonight a few of these women, not my second secondary profiles, but the primary sources that um, that I found and used to uh, to discuss them individually in some cases and as a group. Um, so what's the, have we got another 20 minutes to, to look at these sources, Rabbi? How's, how's the timing going? I'm, yeah, okay, thank you. So I do have a, a slight problem sometimes with going over and I'm trying to work on it. So I hope you'll help me and uh, keep me honest. So, um, so you can see that I've given you with the, in bold, the names of, uh, the women about whom, uh, uh, the sources are speaking. And there's Sonia Dora and Francesa Sara. Another one uh, on the back of the first page is the daughter of Rabbi Rafael Anav. About her, there's, the, in a way, the most material, but in none of it is she actually referred to by her own name in this, in this document. Um, and then the last one is Rachel Aberlin. It's on the, on the fourth page. And they're, uh, they're kind of a spectrum, which is why the, the, the source sheet is... Uh, lets you see the spectrum of very uh, intensive women's mysticism in late 16th and early 17th century um, Tzfat, basically. Tzfat and Damascus, believe it or not. Basically, the, this whole area in that period is controlled by the Ottomans and and the people are going back and forth all the time between Jerusalem and, uh, and Damascus. And, and Sfat is an important city in the northern, in Galilee and Israel. So, um, so people would go back and forth between the Jewish community, especially those three, Jerusalem, Damascus, and Sfat. So in the 16th century, you've probably heard a little bit about the Renaissance in Sfat, and the great uh, people who came together there, Joseph Caro, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, and Shlomo Al-Kabetz, who wrote L'Chadodi, and a few other things too. 
uh, Israel Najara, the great liturgical poet who wrote so many of the Shabbat songs, and of course, Moses Cordovero, the Pardes de Monim, the Orchard of Pomegranates, and Isaac Luria, everybody knows, right? Isaac Luria, who wrote the Luriana Kabbalah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and Chaim Vital, who really wrote Luriana Kabbalah, who was Luria's student. Um, Chaim Vital, who was, uh, as, I, as I just said, the, the person responsible for writing Luriana Kabbalah, um, he, uh, in his, his own personal journals, I found the, the biggest cache of material on these women. So he's, in a way, uh, certainly after the death of Cordovero and Luria, he's, uh, he's arguably the greatest Kabbalist uh, alive, Chaim Vital. And he's also a person who got smicha as a rabbi from the same person who gave it to Joseph Caro, the guy who wrote the Shulchan Aruch. We're talking about super big league rabbi, okay? Not Chaim Vital, both in the realm of halacha and in the realm of Kabbalah. Number one in Kabbalah, still highly ranked in halacha as well. Um, and he's... <clears throat> So he's the top Kabbalist, and he's the one who's writing about, about women, not because he thought he should write a book about great women, you know, like Great Women I Know by Chaim Vital, but he's writing these autobiographical fragments in, in a journal, and he has, his journal is very personal. It's, actually very, it's, kind of, it's sometimes it's a bit freaky. It's, very, uh, it's a guy who had some issues, undoubtedly, and um, a lot of what he says ultimately gets back to some, some, some seeming attempt to reassure himself that he's really okay. You know, that sounds like real new age psychology talk or something, but you just see that in, he's always writing things like today, like my mom said I was a good boy. You know, that kind of, but, but it doesn't, it's not about his mom, it's about all these other people, and it gets, you know, rather detailed. And he's getting a lot of validation from women in his communities, as he himself is going from Tzfat to Jerusalem to Damascus. And he's, he's very happy to say a few words about the people who have validated who he is, um, but he often says things sort of in passing, and he often says things that just, just the way he describes them that give us some insight into a whole world that we knew absolutely nothing about. Like these, this, these, these spiritually uh, intense uh, women who have a kind of sorority in Tzfat and its environs in the, in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. So there's a spectrum here going from Sonia Dora, who's, who's more of a, uh, an, an expert in, in techniques, div divination techniques. And um, she was probably like a, one of those uh, wise women, herbalists, uh, midwife, uh, kind of all-purpose all uh, uh, 
woman. I don't know. I could call her something else too, but uh, hmm. Yes, well said. Yes, so Jane of all of all those kind of that that kind. You know, there's a certain group of things that are in, in this package that, that she's part of. But I uh, I go from there in the sources to to women who have rather less to do with divination and and providing, you might say, services to their communities um, uh, as, as healers or some such thing, and women who are understood to be uh, more like prophets. So you see the later sources are more about the women who are identified in, in Vital's own writing and in other sources. This, uh, the source sheet includes as well um, a story about a woman in 16th century Tzvat. What's sort of uh, surprising about it is that in all of the published versions of uh, stories told of the great wonder workers of 16th century Tzvat and the amazing fi figures who are in that community, um, there, you'll find nothing about any women. There were no women in those books, and they were published and republished throughout the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. That's something Jews want to read stories about. Spot their collections of what, what are called hagiographical hegi tales that are available, stories of the, of the great spiritual masters of the period. And... Um, Again, as part of my research, I was interested in, this, in, the, in these collections, but when I went back to, and found the earliest manuscripts, one manuscript in particular, I found that it included stories about a woman that I'd, I had seen Vital mention in his autobiographical journals. So, I so I'm finding a, an early version of the sort of the stories of the great saints of 16th century Tzvat, and it includes stories about this saintly, prophetic woman who had been mentioned as uh, someone that Vital knew in his, and describes. So that's, that's the second one, Francesa Sara. Um, so I don't, uh, we could do any number of things now, but we could, dip into a couple of these and just, um, just, just to give you a sense. Uh, also, yeah, um, in, in the first source, all I want to do together with you now is maybe just the first sentence that he describes this woman as a wise woman, Nisha Chachama in Hebrew, which... I have reason to believe meant very much uh, what it means today when you say in English, at least to certain people, a wise woman. That's that complex of midwifery and herbalism and so forth, healing, various healing modalities. And, and uh, um, uh, so this is a practitioner, and she also predicted the future, which may mean... Um, that she had a kind of uh, a clairvoyance that came to her naturally, and because otherwise 
it usually takes pains to mention the particular techniques that are used to see the future. You see he follows what he's, he predicted the future and also was an expert in oil gazing, a, a, a divination method involving a, usually a, a bowl of water upon which some oil has been drizzled and then you would be looking for patterns in the oil almost like in the same way that people read tea leaves or something like that. So this woman is, is, an, is a practitioner of these arts and Vital seeks her out. And all I, all I need to take out of it with you at the moment is that thanks to this little source, so we know about this woman who was part of the community in Svat in 1570, and one of the great rabbis of the generation uh, was consulting her and wasn't trying to hide it. He was writing it, writing it down and praising her and course, from a psychological point of view, using, using her and, and setting her up as a very esteemed person to, to make the validation even more meaningful. But nevertheless, you, you know that she's out there. And uh, we could have assumed she was out there, but this is the literary evidence of her presence and uh, the name she was known by and the fact that... Um, such a, a significant rabbinic figure what, thought it appropriate to consult her and to make a record of that consultation um, with the, that's anything but apologetic. The second source, the second character, is this woman, Frances Asara, whom Vital described in an autobiographical fragmentary note as a pious woman who sees visions while awake and hears a voice speaking to her, most of her pronouncements are true. That one was outside of any, even, any straight-up validation. He just was writing about uh, a certain event that took place, and when he, when he mentions this woman, he's, he describes her as this pious woman who sees visions while awake. Vital is very aware of uh, the hierarchy of different forms of prophecy. So um, if you have a dream and ha see something in your dream, that's cute, but it's like not so high, right? It's, if you want a real better prophet, as seeing things while wide awake. And um, so he's, you know, kind of, he's grading her in a way where he's, or he's, uh, he's, characterizing her, so you, you have a pretty good sense from his characterization that she's very high up there. She's highly ranked, because not too many of his Kabbalist guy friends have visions while they're awake. And she hears a voice speaking to her. It's another kind of revelation. These are, these are not one-trick ponies. You know, they've, got a, they've got a few tricks. And so she... She has a vis visionary activity, and she has auditory, revelatory activity. And she says things that usually turn out to be true, which as we... Oh, was that? No, that wasn't. I was trying to think, and uh, I gave so many talks over Shabbat this weekend that my head's spinning a little bit tonight. But, um, but at some point... Uh, oh, yeah. It doesn't matter. Sorry about that. Okay, shouldn't have said a thing. Um, in the earliest manuscript of the hagiographical stories, 
that, uh, that I found. The same woman is mentioned again, and that's, uh, that source just follows. We don't have to read the whole thing together, but they're very interesting stories about, uh, well, they're about her, but they, because they're part of this collection that's designed to uh, glorify the great rabbinic saints, the great spiritual heroes of 16th century Tzfat, like they're stories. They're, they're amazing stories that happen that testify to the awesomeness of these characters in 16th century Tzfat. So, um, so they're not exactly like you know, historical accounts, but it's so interesting to see the way they're set up. Uh, in, in, the, in the first story, it's this, we hear about a rabbi who was skeptical about this woman. He just couldn't believe that all, everything people were saying about her was true, and he decides that he's going to test her. So it's a story of somebody who's skeptical about a woman having this kind of repu reputation among his rabbinic colleagues, and he decides he's going he's gonna to check her out himself. And it's, just, it's basically, you could say, the story of his conversion to being a kind of devotee of this woman who's a, such a spiritual giant. And, uh, yeah, oh, that, okay, that's the, that's the second story. The first, the first story of the two you'll see in the, in the source sheet is her, it's very interesting, it's the story of her declaring, no, it's not, she, it, it's, it's her warning of, uh, to the rabbinic authorities of 16th century Tzfat, just like the great tribunal of Tzfat, with some of the, these are Caro and his colleagues, right? This is the biggest of the big leagues ever. And it's the story of how she sent them a message saying, I have received word from beyond the veil, so to speak, right? I've been, I've been given a, a, to know that there is a plague on its way. This community is going to be wiped out because of its uh, propensity to, to sin. And uh, if people don't fast and repent immediately, the community will be, will be wiped out. And the story says that the rabbis did exactly what she told them to do. Like, she sent the message, and they did it. So there's a woman in Sfat, whom we know was an historical figure, whom Vital writes about, and she is, on the basis of her spiritual authority, telling the greatest Kabbalists of the 16th century and the greatest rabbinic legal scholars that they need to get the whole Jewish community to show up in the synagogue for a day-long vigil of fasting and prayer. And they are just right in step. They're doing it. Uh, so this is just uh, also quite, quite uh, a, a novel finding. Um, one other little footnote, if you see the, in, early in the hagiographical source, 
it says that she had a magid to speak to her and to inform her of what there was, what was to be in the world. And a, a magid is a speaking angel. If you look up magid in the Encyclopedia Judaica, you'll see an entry that says, this is a kind of revelation that was only associated with the very greatest rabbis who ever lived. They, uh, such a rabbi could have a magid. A magid later in Eastern European lingo means a kind of traveling preacher. That's not the idea here. Here, magid is from, from the same Hebrew root that means to say something, but it's referring specifically to what would be expressed in Hebrew as hamalach hamagid, this angel who's doing the talking. And the idea is that, sounds quite pathological, I know, to our modern ears, but the idea is that this angel lodges itself in the organs of speech of its host and is able to dictate to its host who's in a kind of dissociative state, perhaps we, could, we would describe it today, but unlike uh, normal, typical forms of spirit possession where if, if there's another being in the person's body, the, it's a full takeover. In the case of the magid, the person who's hosting the, the foreign element, the foreign spirit, is fully awake and can talk to the other creature that's sharing his body at the time. And that's this magid angel state. And the Encyclopedia Judaica will show you that only the greatest rabbis have a magid. The most famous example of a rabbi who had a magid is Joseph Caro, again, to mention him again, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, the most important codification of Jewish law. Um, for our purposes uh, in history. So uh, the, problem, the problem is that um, Francesa Sara was not one of the greatest rabbis who ever lived. She was a prophetess, a saintly woman in 16th century Tzfat. And in her time, she was recognized as having this particular form of revelation that some people here might feel more comfortable just calling it pathology, but whatever, this kind of revelation was something that was at its time highly revered. And she had it. And so the, that Encyclopedia Judaica article still needs to be updated, I think. But, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, undoubtedly, it's prob uh, probably about time that I start thinking about wrapping up and opening the floor to questions. But if I, ha if I would have to choose one more uh, source to share with you, the, the long source on the daughter of Raphael Nav is truly mind-blowing and uh, perhaps truly disturbing as well in various ways. Uh, there you get the full account of a young woman who began her career, so to speak, as the uh, passive victim of some kind of spirit possession, but who thereafter gained a kind of mastery of the spirits and transformed herself and was recognized by her community as a medium with the ability to uh, uh, communicate with the dead. 
and with angels and, uh, and with a certain amount of authority who could summon rabbis to appear before her for chastisement and, uh, and uh, could be the means for the transmission of terrible secrets that uh, were in various uh, people's closets, so to speak, when, when crowds would assemble before her, she could, uh, in the voice of one of these spirits, say, no, this person is, was guilty of this crime, this person was guilty of that crime, this is a sin that that guy, think, you think that guy's so pious with a nice beard over there? Let me tell you what he was eating on Yom Kippur. So she, you'll see, this is like, a, it's right there, I'm, I'm not even making up the worst of it, it's... It's, it's almost like that joke, the, um, yeah, they made the movie out of it, everybody has to tell it, The Incredible, no, not The Incredibles, the, John Stewart was in it, all the comedians were asked to tell the same joke, and the whole idea is you have to make it more and more outrageous, and it's a kind of, a, it's a joke comedians tell each other. Nobody saw this horrible film? Okay. Okay, it doesn't matter. The, aristoc the Aristocrats. That's the name of the film and the name of the joke. So this is now, of course, a reference that means nothing to anyone. So let us move on and conclude. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that's so uh, interesting about that source on the daughter of Rafaela Nav is that you, it's a young woman, and she's exhibiting all of these behaviors, gifts, whatever you want to call them. Um, and you can just imagine, this is, this is not a hey geographical source. This, is not, this was not meant for distribution. I got this material about her from the, this journal uh, of Chaim Vital's that was unpublished until the, somebody published the manuscript in 1954. But hundreds of years it was unpublished. Um, so the, um, you, you get the sense that this was a pretty traumatic and crazy intense period in this young woman's life. Like it's, it's quite uh, in, incredible to think about this scene happening, however you understand it, but this is not, wasn't made up any more than when, you know, I don't know, anthropologists go visit villages and see there's somebody spirit-possessed. It doesn't mean that the stuff actually happens. Why it happens, how it happens, how you understand it and so forth, you can debate about. But the stuff happened. This happened. The story happened. The, uh, and uh, something very, in a way, touching emerges at, 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 in, the, in the story, and that is that um, an, an older woman and the woman who seems to be the one who is most widely revered in this group that Vital wrote about, and then I found elsewhere as well, um, the woman who's most revered in that, in that group it comes to spend some time with the young woman whose name we still don't know, but has, who has emerged as this formidable character as a young teenager on the scene in, uh, in Damascus. So uh, 
and the woman who comforts her and, and takes her under her wing in, in Damascus is the same woman whom we know about as having lived in Tzfat some 30 years earlier. And uh, she was a woman by the name of Rachel Aberlane, Rachel, sometimes called Rachel the Ashkenazic woman, in the sources Rachel Ashkenaziah. And uh, I was recently in Tzfat. I just mentioned I took a, 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 one of my classes from the University of Haifa to Tzfat on a field trip. And uh, the archaeologist there showed me that they just found what seems to be her headstone in the cemetery in Tzfat. And uh, she's the one that I wrote about in the Encyclopedia Judaica also. So that's kind of cool. Um, so... Um, she was married to a, a very wealthy man, Judah Aberlin. We know about him. We know about them. Her brother was a famous Kabbalist in his own right. Uh, and these little fragments at the very end of the fourth page, your second double-sided page, these are some of the juiciest bits about Rachel Aberlin, the woman whom I believe to have been the most important Jewish woman female mystic of the 16th century, who also happened to be the closest friend of the greatest male Jewish mystic of the 16th century, at least by that time, right? Uh, early 17th century, uh, Chaim Vital. So Chaim Vital wrote in 1578 about being in Jerusalem on Shabbat morning, and Rachel, the sister of Judah Mishan, that he was another disciple of Isaac Luria's, said that the whole time that I preached, she saw a pillar of fire on my head and Elijah the prophet to my right supporting me when I finished preaching the two departed. Um, another scrap in his journal says, in the year 1602, she saw a pillar of fire, fire on my head when I led the Yom Kippur Musaf prayer at the Sicilian synagogue. This woman is regularly accustomed to seeing visions, demons, spirits, and angels. She's right about most everything she says since the time of her childhood and in her adulthood. Um, there are a lot of sources <clears throat> about Rachel Aberlein. I didn't bring them all here, obviously, but um, she was in touch with, not just in touch with Chaim Vital, but uh, a patron of Chaim Vital's for decades. She uh, was left a nice fortune by her husband and supported a kind of uh, a complex, you might say, in Svat, which housed a number of the rabbis who'd been students of Isaac Luria's and had a little study, you know, those are apartments, living quarters, a study hall, study hall, and a little synagogue space and so forth. It's a Apparently, right next to the Abuav synagogue in Sfat, if anybody, if you've done a recent synagogue trip to Sfat, you probably went right by it. Hmm? Not there. The Abuav, it's just under the shuk where they have all that artwork for sale. You know, on, I think that's Caro Street, so it's just below Caro Street, yeah. So that's, that was, that was where Rachel Aberlin's, uh, apartment complex was, where Vital lived, and she also lived, they're always together in Sfat and in Jerusalem and Damascus, and uh, the last source on, on the sheet is, to my mind, one that, at least as I read it, 
puts it all in a kind of perspective. It's, uh, of course, you know, we all, we're always getting everything mediated by male Kabbalists at the end of the day anyway. It's, it's Chaim Vital reporting, and we're not getting the writing of these women, because I, I honestly don't even know how many of them could, could write. But, um, but here you have Vital writing something that was not va a validation of his greatness, but, you know, my, my wife, who's, who was she's Brazilian, but she was raised in England, she would call this taking the piss. This is like, that means, it's a kind, I don't even know exactly what it means, why they say that, but they, but it, I love the expression. It, it means like, he's, he's getting cut down in the thing, he's writing in his journal about, um, about this interaction that he had with, with Rachel, with Rachel, and it's a cut down on him. That's what we'd say in Detroit, I think. I haven't been in Detroit a long time either. But, okay, so here's, here's this, this is the passage. It's remarkable, and it's good if I'm going to read one thing from beginning to end with you tonight. So this is, the, this is the passage. It's the last thing on the last page. 28 Adar 2, right, in 1609. That was my addition. Rachel, the Ashkenazic Jewish woman, right, saw in a dream that I was in a certain house before a table piled with books to learn. Okay, this is Vital writing that this woman had a dream. She told him about the dream, so he knows she had the dream. And this was the dream she had. I, Chaim Vital, was in a house. She saw me sitting in front of a table that was piled up with books. That's what Kabbalists do, right? That's what rabbis do, sit at tables piled up with books. I hope so. Now, <clears throat> I was eating a vegetable meal of radishes and horseradish. Yum, huh? Um, I'm sure there must have been like a little labanet or something, right? How could there not be? A little sour cream. <laughs> she was from, she was the Ashkenazic one. He wasn't so maybe he was eating labanin, she was thinking sour cream, I don't know. But uh, he's eating this meal, but it's clearly not uh, a, a meal of delectable, you know, lamb chops and I don't know. Just it's, this is not a rich meal. It's, uh, it's, it's an extremely austere meal. Even uh, you could call it... Uh, uh, an ascetic meal, because those vegetables even have the, that sharpness, exactly. So, and, you know, to say in the 16th century, I'm a vegetarian, it's not like today where you're like, oh, that's nice, you're a good person. Um, in the 16th century, you tell someone you're a vegetarian, they're like, are you nuts? I mean, you could get meat protein, animal protein, and you're eating radishes? Crazy. So... So Vital already is starting to share, at this point, the cut down on him, that she's dreaming that he's at a table full of books eating radishes. And she doesn't respond to that. She says, she in the dream, she saw that in this scene in his house that there was a large heap of straw and chaff. And she saw that this pile was blazing on fire 
And yet, it's like a, a burning bush scene. Nothing's getting consumed. So Chaim Vital is sitting in this room with his radishes and his books, and she's seeing in the background this blazing fire of, of like hay or something. And that hay, hay bale is, is just going and going, illuminating the house. And from this fire was emitting light that lit me up in the whole house with a great light. So she's, you know, she's seeing this increasingly light-flooded vision of Vital with his holy books and his radishes. And she still in the, yeah, no, and, that, and that's the end of the dream, okay? At, at this point, she comes to Vital, he writes, and she tells me the dream, and she says to me, so what, you know, what do you make of that? To, could you give me an understanding? How do you understand that? That's a legit thing for someone to ask their friend and, and uh, you know, colleague and great expert in Kabbalah. I had this dream. What do you make of it? And I answered, Vital says, I answered, there is a pasuk, right? If you look in the Navi and the prophets, there's, a, there's actually a verse. And that, according to that verse, there's a fire, and uh, the Jacob, the house of Jacob is on fire, and the house of Joseph are flame. But Esau, that's, the house of Esau is straw, and that straw will be, we know according to the verse, that that straw will ultimately be consumed what it sounds like is, uh, well, what, what it is very minimally is uh, a statement by Vital that uh, her dream was some kind of visualization of this prophecy from the book of Ovadia. Kind of like Apple says, there's an app for that. Vital says there's a pasuk for that. There's a verse for that. You had that dream? Okay, there's a verse for that. He gives her the verse. And she says to me, she said to me, writes Vital, last sentence of the source sheet, she said to me, you tell me the words of the verse as, as it is written, but I see the matter itself in practice completely manifest. So... Vital writing that one of his closest friends and lifelong associates has had this dream, submitted it to him for his analysis, and said to him, you call that an interpretation of the dream? You, that's what you understand? You see, <clears throat> give me a, a verse? I'm seeing the thing, I'm seeing the thing itself. That's so much deeper than the verse. What, 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 you know, what, uh, you know, basically the, the whole thing uh, comes together to, to, to suggest that even from Vital's point of view, um, the, the great mystics were not necessarily 
the same as the great Kabbalists. And you could, uh, you could be the greatest Kabbalist in the world and come up with straw, basically, when, when asked to give a spiritual interpretation of something. And you could be a woman who no one has ever heard of, who uh, doesn't know any Kabbalistic books, probably never read a Kabbalistic book in her life, but who has confidence in her own spiritual prowess and understanding and uh, was always ready to praise Vital and to say that he was a person who was generating tremendous light, whether it was seeing him as a, as a, as a cantor and seeing pillars of light coming out of his head or... <clears throat> Or seeing him in a dream with a great light in being emitted in his surroundings. But also able to say, look, you've got to understand, a table piled with books and giving me a verse it's not that, is not the be-all and end-all of what it means to be connected to God and to be a Jewish mystic. Obviously, she would never, there's no such word in Hebrew as Jewish mystic, but you get, you get my point. Um, so this is, a, I hope, uh, a helpful introduction to the uh, the material that that I brought out uh, in in that book from a few years ago, and was taken up subsequently by a wonderful historian named Ada Rappaport Albert, who's written the next chapter historically on how in the 17th century female prophets were central to the greatest messianic movement and, uh, since Christianity in the Jewish world, namely the Sabbatean messianic movement of the 1660s. And uh, you know, the stories do continue, and it's, a, it's an interesting trajectory. Someone from not too far away, Nathaniel Deutsch, who's at UC Santa Cruz, wrote a book on the, the maiden of Ludmir, who was the only woman to ever serve as a Hasidic Rebbe in Eastern Europe. Um, you know, so that's also a kind of con continuation of this story. Um, but <clears throat> I'd be very happy for as long as uh, the rabbi believes is appropriate to take some questions. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. In your research, how and where were you able to find all these old documents? Mm. Did you find any in Svat? Sure. Um, when I finished my uh, four years of coursework and exams in New, in New Haven, I went to Jerusalem because I wanted to go to Jerusalem and because in the National Library, there's an, <clears throat> an institute called the Institute for Microfilmed Hebrew Manuscripts. It was um, a project initiated in the 19, I'm going to say the 1950s, by David Ben-Gurion, who, be, because of his great interest in the humanities and in, and in historical Hebrew literature, um, envisioned a project that would bring together in Jerusalem microfilms of Hebrew manuscripts wherever they were 
in libraries around the world. So thanks to that vision, which was largely successful with the exception of some libraries in the, at the, in the what was at the time the Soviet Union, um, this was a tremendous success. And it is the place where you can ask to see any number of, you know, thou literally thousands of manuscripts um, that would have otherwise required going to the Vatican one day and to the Bodleian at Oxford another day and to the city library of, <coughs> of Munich. And these ma manuscripts, Hebrew manuscripts, are everywhere. And uh, so the easy answer to your question is I went to, the, I went to Jerusalem and I went to the Microfilms Institute and... That's where everybody who's doing this kind of research, manuscript-based research on Jewish culture, <clears throat> needs to go. Although increasingly, many of these collections from the, <clears throat> from the original libraries where the manuscripts can be found are digitizing those collections. So the Vatican today offers, from the comfort of your living room, you know, you can, you can look at Hebrew manuscripts that have been digitized there. <clears throat> that saves, I don't live in Jerusalem anymore, so that very often saves me a trip to Jerusalem. Um, and obviously beyond that, it's that you, you, know, you can start playing a game of connections. Like I was working on um, some texts that I knew about, and you, know, you follow the leads to the texts that, you, that you, you didn't know about, but that's something that catalogs can, can help point you in the direction of. And there's always an expert on something. The hagiographical literature was, you know, I knew the, I knew the person working on, on that. It's another advantage of doing research in Jerusalem is that you're more likely to find the people who are expert on some incredibly esoteric subject in the history of Jewish culture. And they're usually somewhere in the reading room on, you know, in the National Library, you can literally go over and tap them on the shoulder and say, oh, Mary, have you, do you know if there's a manuscript that, you know, like this or that, or what's the earliest place, or who's written about this? It's just incredible. But um, yes, that's a plug for the National Library. I'm just curious about... Uh, People nowadays, if they were to say that they had visions or something, they'd end up under medication. Right. Um, at what point does that cross over? Do you feel that religion says, okay, you are a seer, you are a, a prophet versus you need some medication, you're right. not right? Good question. Um, I mean, I would say two things. One is that a big surprise for me when I started looking into possession at all, historically, was that uh, this kind of urban legend that everybody who was crazy before modern times was presumed to be possessed by demons or something like that, that they didn't understand organic mental illnesses or that someone could just be whatever, some form of, some have a form of mental illness that wasn't supernatural, right? I discovered that that was utter hogwash and that for centuries people were completely aware of the, let's say not, it's weird to say completely aware of it, but for centuries people made the distinction between various forms of craziness, 
okay, or mental illness, shiga'on in Hebrew. That's why I'm saying, I sometimes say the wrong things in English because of this problem. I'm very politically correct, even if I sound otherwise, you should know, right? Anything that doesn't sound politically correct is because of a language problem, so you must correct it. Um, anyway, so, um, so that was a surprise. Like they made the distinction and they had diagnostic intake procedures, you would say. They, they, uh, I found a, uh, a document written by a rabbi in which he was, his, his, his response to a question about how to, uh, how to treat a woman who was possessed. And his response was, what makes you so sure she's possessed and not just crazy? With a whole list of things that they need to go, you know, check a lot of, check off the boxes. That's the one, that's part one of the answer. The other second part is that all of these mental illness things are, are so cultural that it, it, it ultimately doesn't make a lot of sense to ask, you know, what would we have called this today or what would this be? Because there isn't, it's like a, that's a hypothetical that can't be because it was what it was because it was where it was and when it was and with whom it was and and the way people understood what was possible and what uh <clears throat> you know what was understood by people experiencing uh, forms of illness and what was v validated by their communities just changes all the time look at any book on the history of hysteria just the fact that there's a history of hysteria and that we no longer talk about hysteria today. That's the most uh, you know, off-the-charts example of how culture-bound illness can be and mental illness in particular. So, I would, so I'm, saying, I'm, saying, I'm saying two things. One is historically, they made the distinction between men, <clears throat> mental illness and spiritual afflictions. And the other thing I'm saying is, the way that distinction will be made anywhere will always be historically or culturally contingent. So there is there isn't a right like setting where we've we've got it all figured out. This is mental illness, and we understand what's going on. And now we can go back and uh, provide accurate diagnoses of mental illnesses historically. That's doesn't seem doesn't seem to, uh, to be the way the way forward. But I, I hope that was a, a somewhat helpful uh, response. One, uh, historically speaking, you're talking about the uh, 16th, 17th century. Right. Intelligence or learning is passed down from generation to generation, mother to daughter, granddaughter, and on. Mm -hmm. There must be mystic women prior to the 16th century? Is it just not sure. written about or? Um, well, <clears throat> the, the easy answer is yes, you're, you're right. Of course, of course there were. Um, I never set my task as uh, the writing of a history of uh, Jewish women's spirituality or piet pietism, religiosity, but only to share the sources that I found while looking for other things in the 16th century. And I felt obliged to do something with these findings. Um, but, but of course, uh, we, 
what you have in previous centuries as well are here and there sources in which uh, oftentimes uh, in, in passing share details about, uh, about an, a significant woman. Uh, there, are some, there are some very significant women like uh, who in, even in earlier centuries, in the 15th century, uh, especially I'm thinking of women who inherited great fortunes and who became very significant uh, lay leaders in the Jewish community of their eras. But the, this kind of pietistic, mystical prowess is rather less frequently referred to. You can look at, you can, there ha, you can write uh, about the Jewish women who were conversas in Spain and um, the, there are inquisitorial uh, trials that document the activity of these young women who are very similar to the young woman that I found uh, described in Vital's journal. So like for every century almost, going back certainly to the 12th century, you can find some, something to work with. Not a lot, but something. And, and in the last few years, more and more is being done with that material. At least in, it's, it's not all available yet in English, but it has become a topic of interest. Now, this is true in general about Jewish history in the Middle Ages. You have people doing more and more social history of women in the Middle Ages, but there's a limited amount of material that can... Uh, be used to write a kind of history of women's mysticism, per se, in the Jewish community in those earlier centuries. Uh, Dr. Hayes, this has been uh, wonderful and enlightening. Uh, we'll take two more questions, but I'm going to take privilege of one of those uh, uh, okay. last questions. So You deserve it. You have these women who are uh, saying some really harsh things right. about uh, the male leaders yeah. uh, and the, the type of communities that have come about. Why weren't these women just labeled as witches or uh, crazy? What was it that led these men to believe what these women were seeing, that, that this was, you know, this was a Magid and this was yeah. a revelation? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, it's, of course, you know, you, in a way, you have the same document that I had, and so I rarely can do more than speculate in, in, such, in such matters. One of my um, speculations is that just overall, the suspicion of the rabbinic authorities for this kind of uh, female spiritual uh, prowess was uh, much lower than we imagine it must always have been, right? And that's, I th my theory on one foot is that the centrality, the prominence of women among the street prophets of the Sabatian Messianic movement was something that rebounded to their detriment subsequently. Because when the rabbis looked back at the hysteria of the Sabatian movement, they sort of identified a good part of the hysteria with these women prophets um, who, who were 
speaking in tongues and speaking clairvoyantly on the streets of Jewish cities around the Mediterranean. So I think that, for example, that's the reason why the women, this woman, Francesa Sara, was deleted from the account of you know, that collection of stories of the great saints of 16th century Tzfat. It seemed at the time, in the early in the 17th century, totally fine to put women in the collection. Who's threatened by that? No. Since when is that a problem? Let's, we say in Hebrew, Messiah lefitumo. He's speaking naively. He doesn't he, Vital wasn't writing for women or against women. He's just writing about people in his community and who are amazing, and some of them are women. And there was a, uh, and okay, so it, that will become more problematic later. Um, um, and I think that they had an idea that if uh, a revered woman had shocking revelations to share, that uh, you can't, you can't all this, you can't so easily shut her down just because she's on a rant against your colleagues. Now there is a political backstory to this hair-raising uh, litany of uh, allegations. And that is that uh, Vital is not the object of, of the most vitriolic insults here, but the rabbi in Damascus, who he doesn't think gives him enough respect, is the guy who's getting nailed by her you know, from every angle. Um, but there is, there, there is still a barb or two against Vital that he, that he transmits. Um, but what he really is relishing in is the fact that it's his despised colleague. So it's the other rabbi in town that he's very happy to pass on the uh, the accusations about. Can you relate to that, Rabbi? Can you, does that resonate <laughs> not, not in any all. way? No, not at all. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, one last question, perhaps. Um, Dina, you had one? Oh, Okay. Oh, uh, thank you. Um, you know, different thoughts pass uh, through my mind. Mm. Don't stop. <laughs> uh, uh, but in one book I read about, uh, uh, written by uh, a man whose father uh, uh, would hear voices, and uh, he made a mistake with somebody, uh, and uh, he never made that mistake again. Mm. Uh, but uh, he wrote this book in, uh, in honor of his uh, father, and other people who had this problem, apparently people who are certifiably sane and hear voices uh, and enjoy it. Uh, uh, one that uh, comes to me, I don't have a reason, a man who liked to work in his garden. And uh, while he was working in his garden, he loved uh, hearing, he talked with his uh, deceased grandmother mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, but in this book, uh, he mentioned, uh, 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 it was, Christian in, in, uh, 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 incident rather than a Jewish one. Okay. Uh, but uh, I believe it was St. Teresa of Avila. Well, she was Jewish, so that's okay. Was she? Sure, she was a conversa. Oh, that's what, delicious. You thought she was a shiksa the whole time? <laughs> yes, I, it never, it never occurred to me. I can't believe it. I thought, I thought of... Uh, Poor Teresa. Yes, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty wonderful. <laughs> but anyway, uh, apparently... 
<laughs> I, I didn't hear that. I have to revise oh, your yes, opinion of but that. That happens. Yes, uh, but uh, what uh, what happened is uh, as she she's was not an abbess. Abbot song for some reason. I don't know yeah. why. She was an abbess, and uh, she had visions of uh, Evans' crystal palace. That's right. Yeah, maybe you know about that. Yeah, well, you can compare her visions to the girls who are described in the inquisitorial trials who are roughly her contemporaries. This is what you were looking for, uh, those yes. heavenly palace, crystal and, palaces. Anyway, so uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the uh, other nuns under her charge, mm -hmm. uh, uh, also began to uh, have similar have visions. Yeah, visions. Yes. And this caught the attention of the Inquisition. Yes. And it could have been terrible. But, sure. But uh, St. Teresa, maybe it was a... Oh, yeah, that I was part of the rabbi's question that I didn't answer about oh. the witchcraft. But, <laughs> but it truly, uh, yeah, witchcraft, it, it's, that's, you should, that, I'll use that as a plug to come hear me tomorrow morning. I'm talking about witchcraft. 